right, let's get after this tonight. We're going to look at Psalm 73. Aben has already kind of given you an appetizer uh, because it's kind of long. So I'm going to let you sit down when I read the other half, uh, <clears throat> give you a little bit of a break. But there's two things that we're going to kind of focus in on from Psalm 73. And it's on your bulletin. If Number one, when you lose perspective, you lose heart. And what I mean by that, losing heart is losing confidence, losing motivation. So when you lose your perspective, you lose heart. And the second thing is worship is the thing that restores your heart. And the way it restores your heart is by restoring your perspective. Okay? Um, so those are the two things. And let me pick up where Aben left off. Remember this guy, this guy Asaph is looking all around him and everybody who's not following God seems to have a perfect life. And he's starting to want to swap because he does follow God and his life's falling apart. Until he went into the sanctuary of God, then he got perspective. And I finally understood the destiny of the wicked. Truly God, you put them on a slippery path and you send them sliding over the cliff to destruction. In an instant, they're destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. When you arise, O Lord, you will laugh at their silly ideas as a person laughs at dreams in the morning. Then, in your sanctuary, I realized that my heart was bitter, and I was all torn up inside. I was so foolish and ignorant, I must have seemed like a senseless animal to you. And yet, even even, even though I wanted to leave you, even though I wanted to swap and have their life, I still belong to you. You still hold my right hand. You still guide me with your counsel, and you lead me to a glorious destiny. Whom have I in heaven but you? I desire you more than anything on earth. My health might fail, my spirit might grow weak, but God remains the strength of my heart. He is mine forever. Those who desert him will perish. For you destroy those who abandon you. But as for me, how good it is to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my shelter. And I will tell everyone about the wonderful things that you do. One quick note about the Old Testament. The Old Testament's very clear in dividing humanity. And the righteous and the wicked. And it's not that the righteous are the good people who follow the rules and have like lived a morally upright life. And the wicked are those who haven't. The righteous are those who have realized they're wicked and have looked to God for grace, okay? That's who the righteous are in the Old Testament. The wicked are those who are still living life on their own, refusing to acknowledge their need for the mercy of God, all right? So if whatever category you find yourself in tonight, this is either a picture, uh, an explanation of why life as a Christian can be very difficult and confusing. And if you're not a Christian, this is uh, what the Bible would call uh, time travel, to go to the end of time and to look at what reality is. And it's an invitation um, because all of us, uh, even if you are a Christian tonight, you were dead in your sins and God invited you to himself and his grace. And so that invitation stands before all of you tonight. So don't get confused by those words. Let's pray. Father, uh, I thank you that you are a pursuing God. You're not a God who is stuck in heaven, but you're a God who has legs. You're a God who runs to his people you help the helpless. You give grace to your enemies. You are patient with people who don't deserve patience. You're realistic. You're honest. You tell the truth. You don't twist the truth. You don't manipulate. You don't coerce. You don't hide. 
but our hearts sometimes suggest otherwise. And so we pray that tonight you would overcome our minds, overcome our hearts, overcome our lack of faith, and let us see you again tonight. That's my prayer. Let us see you. Please, Father, do this for your own joy and our help. We ask it in your name. Amen. Well, a cool thing about the past couple of months here at RUF is there's so many new people, um, either your first few weeks or your first few months here, uh, which means that I have to start telling you me and Anna's story again because you might have forgotten or you might not have heard it. But uh, Anna and I dated for two and a half years before we got engaged and married, and all two and a half years of that was long distance. We knew each other in college, but uh, we started to date after we'd already... I was in Pennsylvania, she was in Colorado. And uh, so all of our relationship was over, I forget the mileage, 1,700 or 1,800 miles. And you wouldn't believe how it can test your motivation in a relationship to date for that long and from that far away. It really tested us. And part of the reason why it was so difficult for us is because I was in... Pennsylvania at school, and those two and a half years, I'm looking at my friends taking walks with their girlfriends and the beautiful fall leaves trickling down, and Anna's in Colorado, and all of her friends are like, hey, boyfriend or girlfriend, I just got off work early. Do you want to go take a run? you want to go work out? want to go see a movie tonight? And we saw the spontaneity and the way these people were able to share life and just kind of have a normal relationship, and we're looking at our relationship, and we're like... It's five hours on the phone, and she's living in Colorado. I'm in Philadelphia, and so what I mean by that is, like, it's the dead of December, and I have paper-thin walls in my house. And so I'm, like, walking the road in 20 degrees. My hand is frozen. The phone's breaking up. And on the good days, we got the Skype, and because my roommate uh, hogged all the Internet with uh, all of his video games, we had, like, four pixels left for me and Anna. So like, and that's not too attractive when you're dating because her face would get stuck in this weird like monster pose in mind for her. And so it, it wasn't helping. And um, needless to say, things were hard because of that. And because of the comparison, we would talk about and we would think in our private like secret moments, maybe, I mean, I know Anna thought this, I thought it too, but we were like, they all have it so easy and we have it so hard. Because look at them. If it's like a Hollywood movie. And look at us. I mean, it's like we, can't, we keep tripping every time we try to run together. Um, and what happened because of that is on the hardest of the hard days, we would have these moments, each of us, where you would start to wonder, is it even worth it anymore? Like, what's the point of this? Because, like, we're putting in a ton of work and there's not much benefit talking to someone on the phone. Is it even worth it to keep doing all of this? And there were moments where we actually got resentful towards our relationship and even bitter towards the relationship. Because you're looking around, you're like, how easy would it be um, when you're with somebody in, the, in their town? And we lost perspective. And when you lose perspective, you lose heart. And when you lose heart, you lose your footing. And when you lose your footing, things fall apart. And so even during those two and a half years, there were several times where our relationship almost fell apart because of that chain of events. Lose perspective, lose heart, lose your footing, lose the relationship. And some of you are in relationships right now. You're like, man, he's a prophet. That's my life right now. But I imagine that's only one or two of you. 
a lot of you might be feeling like uh, this is describing you more with maybe your roommate situation right now. You had so much perspective last semester or last year when you wanted to live with these people. And now you're like, I can't wait to get out of here. You're in the middle. You've lost perspective. And you're looking at everybody around you. And you're like, why did they have it so easy? And I have it so hard. And, and you're going to tell me I'm supposed to love these roommates instead of retreat from them? Are you serious? Some of you feel this with school. Uh, freshman year, you had a ton of perspective. You knew you wanted to be a nurse or an engineer or a professor or an economist or whatever. And now you're two years into your program and it's not what you thought it was going to be. It's harder. Your professors are worse. It's not as interesting. And you have a lot more work than you ever thought. And you've lost perspective in the middle now. You don't even remember why you're doing what you're doing. You're just doing. It just feels like busy work. Your motivation's in the floor. Um, You're resenting your professors and your major, and you're wondering, is it even worth it anymore? And every other major other than yours is looking beautiful right now. You're like studying to be an engineer, and you're like, I could be a poet. I could do that. I think I'm going to switch to an English major. Or, Or the other way around. I could design bridges if you're the English major. You lose perspective, you lose heart. You lose heart, you lose your footing. You lose your footing, you lose it. And nobody in this room is a stranger to this kind of stuff. We all know what it's like to lose perspective and then lose our hope, right? I mean, some of these stories resonate with you, uh, what it's like uh, to lose, uh, lose our vision in that moment and things start to fall apart. But Psalm 73 isn't so much necessarily talking about your academic life, or whatever. It's asking a much bigger question where much more is on the line. Psalm 73 asks you the question, have you ever experienced the stuff that I'm talking about in your relationship with God? Have you ever so lost perspective that you lost heart? All motivation, all confidence, all hope, all joy is just sinking down like a piece of lead in the ocean. And you grow resentful towards God, bitter towards him, comparing your life to everybody around you and wondering, why did they have it so easy and I have it so hard? Psalm 73, if you haven't asked that question, Psalm 73 is bringing it to you on a silver platter saying, maybe, you, maybe this is going to come to you soon. Or maybe you will ask this soon or should ask this soon. It, it allows us to ask these questions and to struggle with this kind of stuff. Really quickly, when we're talking about this losing perspective, losing heart, losing our footing with God in the Christian life, how does it happen to begin with? Maybe we should clear that up first. How does it even happen? How do you get to a place where you lose perspective? I think it happens when a gap forms and begins to get further and further apart. A gap grows between two things. What you thought the Christian life was supposed to be and what it's unfolding to actually be like. So at first, maybe some of you in here just became Christians recently. God has just changed you. And maybe you're young enough in your faith now where um, it's just a little gap. I mean, the way you thought the Christian life was going to go and the way it's going is pretty much, you know, they're pretty much aligned. And so maybe if that gap gets a little bit bigger, you're a little bit confused, but you're still kind of like, man, this is awesome fighting sin, I'm changing, I'm new, I'm different, I love God, I love to read my Bible, I love to go to RUF, I love to go to church, whatever, it's all easy for you. 
But as you, as you grow up, as, you become, as you're a Christian longer and longer, that gap gets a little bit bigger. And when that gap between what you thought the Christian life was going to be and what it's actually panning out to be, when that gap gets bigger and the distance between this and this get farther apart, it starts to annoy you. And it starts to really confuse you. And now the questions are big enough that you can't turn around from them, but they're like always on your mind. Why is this happening? Is it supposed to be this way? Is something wrong with me? Am I doing something wrong? Am I not praying right or something? And, but you're a Christian and you think it's bad policy to uh, complain to God. You're supposed to you know, just soldier through it. And so you keep it inside. You're like, well, maybe it's just me. And you keep going and the gap gets bigger and bigger between what you thought life with God was going to be and what it's actually seeming to be now. And so um, you begin to ask God questions. God, where are you? Why are you doing this? Why aren't you doing that? Why aren't you helping? Why aren't you fixing? How in the world, uh, how in the world is this the life you describe in the Bible for your people? And you get bitter and your motivation tanks and your foot starts to slip. And you ask the question, is it even worth it? Is it even worth it to follow Jesus? Is it even worth it to keep going to church? Is it even worth it? What's the point of praying? What's the point of being a Christian? What's the point of obeying God if this is what I get for it? And then the worst thing happens. You scan the horizon of your relationships and you begin to notice a trend. People who kind of have nothing to do with God, life seems to be going really well for them. They're the ones getting attention at the career fair. They're the ones who have the pretty girlfriend and the awesome boyfriend. They're the ones who don't worry about sin. It's not an issue. And you're like, life's awesome for them. And then you and all your Christian friends sit around talking about, man, my struggle with X, Y, or Z, and I need an accountability partner. And like, I really struggle to do this. And you're like, wait a second. Why is it easy for them and hard for us? And that's what uh, fuels the fire and the resentment and the bitterness. You lose perspective in the Christian life. You lose heart. When you lose heart, you lose your footing. Really quickly, what's the gap for you? Because it happens in different places. This fracture, this gap that begins to float apart, it's different for, for everybody in the room. Uh, for some of you, it might be that fighting lust for you, resisting the urge to open back up the browser and look at what you usually look at, uh, it's like a UFC cage match for you every hour. And then you spend eight hours a day here with your buddies and it's not an issue at all because there's no resistance. It's like, I want to look at that, I'm going to look at that. I want to do that, I'm going to do that. And you're like, that looks awesome. And the gap grows between what you thought it was going to be and what it's seeming to be now. It could be uh, fighting against whatever kind of weird attractions you deal with, whether it's thoughts that pop into your head or voices that you hear or sexual attractions that are heterosexual and very strong, or homosexual and very strong, or whatever. But the way you thought the battle, the struggle against those things was going to go is very different than the way it's going. And you have friends that are just embracing it. And it's a good thing. Go with it. And you're like, life's so easy for them, and it's so hard for me. Why keep working? Why keep fighting? Some of you, your social standing has plummeted because you love awkward people. And you get lunch with people who aren't the cool kids. 
And there might come days where you look and you realize, this is really costing me. I'm a junior and I don't have an awesome friend group yet because I spend it with people who don't have friends. And you wonder, is it time to break away from these people and maybe, maybe following Jesus is costing me too much? Is it worth it? You could be uh, the girl who has made a practice of not throwing the other girls under the bus when you get together. And no one wants, if, if, you're, if you're in a room full of gossipers, nobody wants to have that person in there that won't join in because you feel immediately judged and guilty. And so they don't want to be around you anymore. Or you're the person who you're like, man, I want, I want Jesus to look beautiful to my friends. I want him to look real and powerful because he is. And so he's put me in a country where I can't drink if I'm not 21, so I'm going to obey the rules that he's put above me. And you've stopped getting all phone calls on a Friday night because no one wants you around because they're going to the bar and you can't get in. And so you're sitting there on a Friday night starting to watch around 11 or 12. The Snapchats come in, the Instagram come in, and you're like, I'm not there and they don't even care anymore. And you're beginning to ask the question, is it worth it anymore? What's the point of this? Like Asaph says, have I kept myself pure for nothing? Is this all in vain? And this is where the questions come in. Would I be happier? Some of us run away from God for good when these questions come. Uh, When I was an RUF intern, I saw um, students leave Jesus uh, because their fight with sin was too hard. Uh, Anna and I, the, the guy who played the music at our wedding, who was the worship leader at our church, uh, who is a father of four, who is kind of the most admired guy in our church, left his wife, left his four kids, left Jesus, left the church about three months after we got married. And the elders in the church went and talked to him. He said, why are you doing this? Repent, come back, like leave this. And he said, life's too hard. I don't want life with a wife and four kids. I want the life my buddies have. No responsibilities, nothing to worry about. And he has ruined an entire family, and he's ruined his life. We've seen people leave the church because it wasn't filled with cooler people. We've seen people pay lip service to Jesus while still kind of living up the party life because they don't have the courage to reject Jesus in public. This is like life and death stuff. This is real and this is us. Like, please don't think I'm describing the people out there. I'm describing us. This is Asaph. He's a person of God. He was a church person. He was a person who comes to RUF. And uh, it's not just that. Asaph was like the Daniel or the Morgan or the Simeon. He was the worship leader. And he wasn't just the worship leader of this little ministry over here called RUF. He was the worship leader of Israel, the choir master. Which means there was one place the people of God worshipped God. And it was in the temple in Jerusalem. And Asaph is the choir master. Head honcho, lead worship leader, top guy. And this is a picture into his heart of what he's thinking about as he's walking to church that day. The worship leader. On his way to church. Driving into church that morning. And he's looking at everybody else around him on the road. And he's saying, I want to trade. I want their life. They can have my life, but I want their life. I want to be done with this. That's how real the temptation had become for him. That's how attractive life apart from God had become become for him. He says he's torn apart inside. 
he sees this gap between what he thought life with God was going to be and what life with God actually is seeming to be like now, right? What he thought it was supposed to be is what he says in verse 1. Truly, which means you can count on this, God is good to Israel and to those, there's a qualifier, not God's, not that like God just kind of throws saving grace on everybody, but he's good to those who are pure in heart. Um, that's what he thought life with God was supposed to be. What had life become for him? Verse 5, he implies it. He doesn't say it directly, but he implies it in verse 5. He says, my life is plagued with problems. He's like, I can't get my head above water. Every time I get up, another problem gets put on me. Life is hard. I don't know what it was for him. He doesn't say. Was it a struggle with sin that wouldn't go away? I don't know. Was it the hard work of loving hard to love people? I don't know. Was it just the endurance that's required to continue to serve and lead the people of God in ministry, which is brutal? I don't know. I don't know what it was. But what we do know is what it did to him. He looked around him and he said, everybody else's life that's not following God seems to be going up, and everyone who's following God, their life seems to be going down. What gives? This, you can't notice that and it not affect you. What it did to Asaph is it made his heart bitter, verse 21. It tore him up inside, verse 22, and it got so bad that he envied the proud. Or what it means is he envied the arrogant, which is he wanted to trade. He was at the point where he wanted to go make a deal and to say, if I get your life, you can take my life. That's a throw in the towel moment, right? This is scandalous, right? I mean, would you be a little thrown off if you could like read Daniel's mind or my mind when we're walking to RUF and this is what we're thinking? Would you be like, oh, should I go there and listen to him tonight? This is what he's thinking? So if you're at a place right now where the life of your friends who don't believe in God, don't follow him, don't love him, don't care about him, don't see a need for him. If it looks really attractive to you, now you know why. It's because you've lost perspective. And when you lose perspective, you lose heart. When you lose heart, your foot slips. And you start to slide. And you start to envy and want their life. And you need to get the high ground so you can see again. That's the solution. Now, if you haven't lost perspective left, if you're hearing me and you're like, what in the world is this guy talking about? Because I'm a Christian and how could you ever doubt God or ever think that Christian life is not the greatest thing in the world? Like, what's wrong with this guy up there? If that's you, then you need to hear this and you need to be on guard because the Bible assumes that the people of God are running into troubles like this, okay? That's what it assumes about life for you, that it's going to include this kind of stuff. And so if you haven't felt it yet, you need to be on guard. Where do you need to be on guard? In the middle. You say, well, in the middle of what? In the middle of anything. Remember what I said earlier? When you were a freshman, you knew exactly what you wanted. Well, I'm sorry. That's hurtful to some of you because you have no idea what you want to do. If you were the freshman who knew what you wanted to do, you were all motivated. You're like, yes, I'm going to be this. I'm going to go to med school there. Now you're in the middle. And it's like this midlife crisis for you. Or, or it's in the middle of the roommate situation, or in the middle of the romance, or in the middle of the career, or whatever it is, and you've lost perspective. That's where we lose perspective. It's the middle of the marathon when you start to feel the burn, and you start to wonder, is it worth another 13 miles, or do I tap out now? It's the middle where things fall apart. And so it's in the middle where you have to be most vigilant 
about where your perspective is. It's when the honeymoon is over that you see that. And it's in the middle, hear me, it's in the middle when life apart from God looks most attractive. Here's what I mean. Look down with me at verses 3 through 11. What specifically is it that caught Asaph's eye? What is so attractive to him about the life of the wicked or the life of those apart from God? What is it that caught his attention on his way into church? Here's here's what he says. I don't have verse numbers on this, but I'm reading right off the passage. This is the stuff that tempts you to throw in the towel too. He said, I saw them prosper. They seem to have such a painless life. Their bodies are so healthy and strong. They don't have any troubles. They're fat cats. They have everything their hearts desire. They enjoy a life of ease and their riches multiply. So life's actually not just great, it's getting better. That is what is so attractive. Tie all that up and put a big bow on it. And what he says is what was so attractive is how easy it was. Or easy it appeared, sorry. How easy their life appeared to be. That's what was so attractive. And that's what we envy. That's what we fall in love with. And it reveals, Christian, if you're a Christian here tonight, it reveals that that's what you wanted God to give to you in the Christian life. All of us, me too. What I want, and it exposes what you want, you want God to give you an easy life. I'm not saying that's the only motive. That's not the only motive why you believe or why you're convinced or persuaded or whatever, but it's one of them, is we wanted the easy life We wanted the painless life. We wanted whatever Asaph says, the healthy and strong life, the trouble-free life, the easy, riches-multiplying life. And we get angry because God seems to be giving it to all the wrong people. And that just doesn't make sense. Asaph, in his secret thoughts, began to wonder in verse 13 and 14, did I keep my heart pure for nothing? Did I keep myself innocent for no reason? I get nothing but trouble all day long. Every morning brings me pain. And he tried to figure out this dilemma. Why is this happening? Because verse 1 said, I thought that if you're pure in heart, God's supposed to do good things to you. He's supposed to bless you. Why is this happening? And Asaph didn't get any answers until he went to the sanctuary of God. Verse 17. That's when things changed. That's where he got perspective again, okay? Hang with me here. That's where Asaph got, got perspective is when he went to worship. And that is the only thing that gave him perspective, which gave him heart, which gave him hope, which gave him a footing again. See how it works in reverse? You lose your perspective, you lose that. You gain your perspective, you get back your heart. You get back your confidence. You get back your footing. You begin to move again. And it was worship where his perspective was restored. Let me just throw this at you and let you maybe remember it. Worship, what we did earlier singing, what we're doing now, what you do all day long, worship is a reorientation to reality. Some people think, by the way, if you've been in the church all your life, can you appreciate the fact that for those who haven't been in church all their life, gathering together in a room full of people and singing to an invisible God is weird. Can we just appreciate that? It's not normal. Nobody else, no other group on campus gets together and sings and like reads from an old book and does this. Okay, so uh, just appreciate that. 
But what we're doing here is kind of weird. It's called worship. And worship, contrary to being kind of an escape from reality, where we like naively close our eyes and say, let's forget about the world and let's just pretend like everything's great. Worship is the most realistic thing you do in your week. It's the most honest you ever are. It's the closest you come to the way the world really is, is when you're worshiping. And here's why. Because worship is what happens when a person sees God. The sermon isn't on idolatry, but worship's what's happening when you see your God. Sex is your God, you worship it. If money is your God, you worship it. But if the living God, if the real God is your God, when you see him, you worship. That's what happens. It's the reflex. And worship is when everything else slides into the background and one person remains. That's what worship is. Everything else slides to the background. It doesn't disappear. It's still there. You're still anxious about the test. You're still worried about your boyfriend or your girlfriend or where your relationship's going or the trouble back home. That's still there. But what comes to the forefront is the person of God, not just his stuff, not just his blessings, but him. He is there. And when you see him, he is beautiful to you and you want him and you have him. That's what the Bible means when it says what worship is. Can we pause for a second? Because I don't want to push. I want you to see this. This is a weird thing in the passage. Asaph, as bad as he felt earlier, remember he wanted the life of the wicked. He wanted to trade a little secret side bet. Hey, I'll pretend to be the choir master, but I really want to be over here with these guys. So can we make a deal? That's where he was. He was ready to throw in the towel. And yet still, for whatever reason, I don't know, he was still going to church. That's crazy. He wasn't pretending. He wasn't faking it because he's pouring out his heart here. He was being real, but he was still going to church. Even when he was secretly angry about God, even, even when he was secretly envious. And um, I just want to throw this out there because one of the saddest things that I have to wrestle with in your lives and mine, because you affect me and I affect you, is when people run from God. And anytime you run from God, you run from other people. And the reason we do it is we really don't think that I can be in the presence of God the way I am. You really don't think you can come to RUF or go to church the way you really are, and so you don't come. You start avoiding everybody. You start avoiding God, and it's devastating to see it happen, both in me because I do it and in you because you do it. And Asaph paints a picture that it's okay to come when you secretly walk through that door tonight saying, this is the last time I'm ever coming. Or you secretly walk through the door that night and said, two weeks ago I chucked it all, but I'm still going to come. Whatever. Asaph says it's still okay. Because this is the place, with the people of God looking at God, this is the place where you get your perspective again and you see truly again. Here's where we end. You remember I was talking about me and Anna early in our relationship. That's not the whole story. There were moments where we got resentful of our relationship. We got bitter about it because we're like, why do they have it so easy and we have it so hard? They get to be together. We're far apart. You remember how we rehearsed line by line all of our troubles, how difficult it was, and we lost perspective, and we lost heart, and we almost lost our footing? That happened until... About every two months, when I went to Colorado to see Anna, or Anna came to Philly to see me, 
Because when I saw her, I got my perspective back. And when she saw me, she remembered immediately why we're doing what we're doing. And immediately, we knew it's worth it. It's totally worth it. When we saw each other. And all that cynical stuff, all that comparing, all that envying and wanting someone else's relationship died when I saw her or when she saw me. That's what worship is. It's when you see the living God who's alive and he's beautiful and he's glorious and he's bigger than you and he's eternal and he's powerful and he's lovely and he's gracious and you remember again that if he is like that, then I can endure anything. Which is exactly what Asaph says. If my life falls apart, my flesh fails, and my spirit grows weary, there is no one in heaven that I desire besides you, or no one on earth that I desire besides you. My perspective changed. My perspective was restored. My heart was restored. Our relationship was restored, and we got our footing back when we saw each other. We remembered what it was all about. And the best part of all, it's not just when you see God that worship happens. It's when you see the God of the Bible through faith, which he has to give you. And you don't just see him, but you know he is mine and I am his. God doesn't desire to be seen from a distance. He is not a spectator sport to be watched from the nosebleed seats. He is a God who calls you to himself. That's who he says he is. He is a God of face-to-face intimacy, a God who knows you and desires to be known by you and will remove the blinders on your eyes so that you can see him. That is what Asaph says. He says, I still belong to you. You hold me, you guide me. Whom have I in heaven but you? I desire you more than anyone else on earth. You are mine forever. Friends, worship is where you get your eyes back. It's the most realistic thing you ever do in your life because it's when you see God for who he is and what he's done through Jesus to save you from yourself. That invitation is there tonight for you if you don't know him. And if you do know him, he's giving you your eyes back tonight. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, only you have the power to make dead people alive, to give blind people sight, to convince people who don't. Uh, see you or believe you, which at some level is all of us. And so would you come and do what only you can do tonight? Because otherwise we're going to leave here in the exact same place we came in here. And we pray that you'll do this. Uh, In your name we pray. Amen.